Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Prime Minister told us he would deliver honest government, that he would be open, that he would end spin and restore trust, and that he would deliver competence. After the events of the last few days, can he honestly stand there and say that all over again? Mr. Speaker, all of us, all of us in all sides of this House have an interest in integrity in the funding of political parties. But the Prime Minister is wrong. This is not the exclusive competence of the Electoral Commission, and I'm asking him a simple question. If he thinks something unlawful has taken place, doesn't he have a duty to call in the police himself? Mr. Mr. Speaker, under every convention, we report the matter to the Electoral Commission. The Electoral Commission was set up under a law that we pass with support from the other parties in this House. The Electoral Commission will make its decision as to whether this is a matter for the police, and we will cooperate in any way possible with either the Electoral Commission or the police or both. The public will see the Prime Minister just wriggling. That is the facts of it. Now order. Order. The Right Honourable Gentleman will be heard. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Skinner, be quiet. You know better. And order, order. The Honourable Gentleman is out of order and he knows it. Order. I can hear. The Honourable Gentleman, the Right Honourable Gentleman. Mr. Speaker. That was my favourite part. Order. There will be order. <laughs> Do you know what that is? Oh, I can't wait to tell you. This is great. What you just saw, every Wednesday at noon, Britain's Prime Minister comes to the House of Commons for 30 minutes of Q&A. It's called Questions to the Prime Minister. It's been going on for centuries in uh, British history, but in 1961, it became a fixed uh, event, a, a, a fixed uh, uh, first bi-weekly for 15 minutes, and then in 97, uh, Tony Blair uh, changed it to, wait, why do I know this kind of stuff? Because I just do. Um, for, for half hour every Wednesday, uh, there's this questions to the prime minister, uh, you know, for purposes of communication and accountability. But thanks to C-SPAN, questions to the prime minister has pretty much morphed this into Britain's political version of Gladiator. And that's what goes on. And it takes a quick wit and a razor-sharp tongue to withstand uh, the weekly grilling from the opposition party. Because, you see, the Prime Minister receives no list of questions ahead of time, walks into this 30 minutes of Q&A cold, not knowing what the opposition party is going to ask, so he just simply takes to the podium, and you saw that there, Gordon Brown saw that, you saw that notebook stuffed full of notes and facts and figures with information that he thinks he might be uh, taken to task on. And this element of surprise is intentionally designed to knock the prime minister off guard. And each party is under tremendous political pressure to get the better of their political opponent. And um, the gallery, it's called the Strangers Gallery, uh, tickets are sold out every week to watch this uh, this, this kind of political, you know, world wrestling federation event take place there in the, in the halls of, of parliament. And uh, 
uh, and the British press calls this 30 Minutes one of the most watched TV uh, spots of, of, uh, of the week. Questions to the Prime Minister. Now call me a wimpy Midwesterner, if you will, but I don't think I can endure that kind of cross-examination. I mean, I've said, I'm, I'm watching this, and, uh, you know, it's like, my goodness, where is this going? Where, nowhere. It's going absolutely nowhere. In fact, nobody's going to change their minds. It's just, just 30 minutes of, of ranting and, and uh, of venting and vocalizing and, and criticizing. And it's kind of just for sport, I guess. You know, that's just kind of what it looks like to me. Uh, but of course, this is democracy at work. And I get that. And, uh, and I get that this kind of political clash is much better held in a government building by double-breasted suits holding fountain pens as opposed to a battlefield occupied by Kevlar-vested soldiers brandishing M16 assault rifles. I get that, totally. That said, can you imagine a church where every seven days, the senior minister had to take questions from irate church members of the opposition party. (laughs) I didn't know we had an opposition party. (laughs) And by the way, the elders are meeting with uh, the church family after second service for an hour of communication and prayer. Don't anybody get any ideas, okay? Again, I mean, this is fine for government. You know, and it makes for entertaining TV. But for a church? Huh? A church family? Or what about your family? How do you think something like that would go over in your family? Yeah. Yeah. Some of you have come from churches where you've seen that. Right? Because the fact of the matter is that very scenario has been played out. It's been played out in some of our homes, around some of our dining room tables, or family rooms, uh, or, you know, heaven forbid, places like this. And it's not entertaining, I'll tell you that, when it happens, is it? It's not. And I'll tell you something else. When it happens in a place like this, or in your living room, or your family room, I mean, at least, at least those people up there have, have the respect to begin their rant with his right honorable. <laughs> Something that's not heard in our living rooms, you see. And you wonder, what is it that's fueling that? You know, what is it that's... What is, what is it that's, what's behind that? What's behind that kind of caustic, toxic volley of just verbal rage? Well, what's, what, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, that's the question that James asks in James chapter 4, verse 1. And that's the question we're going to hear him answer this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. 
It's on page 855 of your church Bibles. And we're going to hear James, um, we're going to hear James respond to this very question. He asks the question, and then he answers the question, because he's talking to Christians, Christians, where there's fighting and quarreling. And here's where we're going this morning. You know, when there are fights and quarrels, we get into a conflict, we get into a quarrel, and we're going to see through these verses first that you know, we often think we know what the issue is. We often think we know what the problem is. We walk into Parliament and we look across the, hall, uh, across the aisle and we see the opposition. We think we know what the issue is. James, James is going to say, you know what? That's not the issue. You think the issue is over there on the other side of the aisle. It's not. It's not. There's another issue there's an issue beneath the issue, all right? And, and James is going to tell us what that is. So we're going to see what, the, what we think the issue is, and then what James tells us the issue is behind the issue, and then uh, before we receive communion, we're going to listen to what James says the answer is, all right? So that's where we're going. What, what we think the issue is, what the issue really is, and then what the answer is, James 4. James 4, beginning in verse 1, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So he begins with the question, What causes fights and quarrels? You know, whenever there's a conflict, we... So easy to just come to the fixed conclusion that we think we know what the issue is. And we stand in our parliament and we stare across the aisle at the opposition. And James says, you know what? (laughs) What you think is the issue really isn't. And he's right. He really is. The elders uh, have uh, studied through an excellent leadership book called Axiom. A-X-I-O-M. Axiom. And... In one section of that book, it talks about this very thing in terms of conflict and fighting and quarreling and what happens when that gets unresolved. And I want you to listen to what the author says. It says, you can probably think of a conflict in which you've had a hurtful exchange with someone, but because of the pace of life or your own personal pride, you chose to stick with the day's schedule and simply move on. But moving on became increasingly hard because your mind was distracted by that conversation with your colleague that was anything but collegial. Not that I've done this myself, of course, but I've heard tales of those who've stewed over these situations for days on end, months, even years, and they stew so long that they began to think of the other person differently. And more time passes, and they find themselves uh, imagining schemes in which the other person is actually out to get them as if executing some maniacal plot. And the day finally comes when this person across the aisle is is no longer a person. We begin to see them as an axis of evil in human flesh. And you see, James is beginning to imply here that whenever we have a relational breakdown and issues are left unaddressed, it's like sticking someone on a spit. 
And you begin turning them over and over and over until the heat of your anger begins to burn. And you begin to concoct new reasons why he or she is such a terrible person. And when you're done with your 30 minutes worth of grilling, that person has become an unrecognizable version of who they once were. And at this time, reconciliation is the farthest thing from your mind. What causes fights and quarrels among you, James says, you think it's out there. See, his rebuke comes in the context of of heated political unrest that's going on in the lives of these Hebrew Christians in the first century. And that's why they've been displaced. That's why they're not in their homeland. And there are militant Hebrew zealots who are pushing back against the Roman Empire's occupation of Israel. And it's not going to get any better as the decades ensue. And the pressure is on. And these trials of many kinds, they begin to fragment the Christian community. And they begin going after one another. And James knew that these, that, that these quarrels and arguments and conflicts were not merely res- the result of, of Roman oppressors. There was a war within going on. In fact, so much so that in verse 2, that phrase, you kill and covet, scholars are divided as to whether James is speaking metaphorically or actually. And yet killing and coveting and quarreling and fighting are symptoms of a deeper, darker war that's going on. And in a real sense, James is saying, you think the enemy is out there. You think it's over on the other side of the aisle, but it's not. It's not. Your quarrel is not with Rome. Your quarrel is within your fleshly and divided hearts. And the world which tempted Jesus is now tempting you. And you may blame it on your rival, but the truth of the matter is is that before you've launched your full-scale assault on them, you've engaged in a pre-war between the desires that battle within. That's why James has been talking in chapter 3 about the dangers of harboring bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Chapter 3, verse 14. And that's why James says that if we entertain that and if we, if we begin to engage in that kind of personal inner civil war, we will transform prayer, something which God has designed for us so that we might receive wisdom from him or healing from him. Wisdom, James chapter 1, verse 5. Healing, James chapter 5, verse 14. Call the elders for healing. If, if we succumb to wisdom from hell, then we will begin to use prayer for our own We'll leverage it for our own self-centered, selfish ways. So the problem really isn't the person. The problem is the envious and covetous, selfish pleasures going on in my heart. And James says that if peace from heaven does not rule in our hearts and lives, then by default, peace from hell will take over. Peace from hell will take over. And that's no peace. So what is it that's fueling that? What is it that's fueling that? This this peace from hell. What is it that's fueling that in your heart today? What are the things that you know you you find yourself coveting that you just gotta having a hard time letting go of? You know, I've told you before. I'll confess. You know, I'm a recovering elder brother. In the parable of the lost son. I love I loved my righteousness. I love it. 
I like to flirt with it. I like to date it. I like to court it. I love my righteousness. It's a, it's a needy mistress. It's a needy mistress. You say, that's a pretty graphic way to put it, but that's what James does. See, that's how he puts it. And that's how he identifies really what the issue is beneath the issue. See, we think we know what the issue is, the other, the other person on the other side of the aisle. And James says, no, that's not the issue. Let me tell you what the issue is. James chapter 4, verse 4. Do you see it there? You see the word that he uses? James chapter 4, verse 4, the, it's really just one word. The New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language. And in the original, James chapter 4, verse 4, simply begins with adul- adulteresses. Adulteresses. <laughs> adulteresses. <laughs> James, James calls his congregation adulteresses. I've been here almost 21 years. I've never called you adulteresses. Huh? I mean, at least not before the offering. <laughs> I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. Come on. But he calls the entire congregation adulteresses so much for seeker-sensitive preaching. Why would he say that? Why would he say, the NIV says, you adulterous people, but literally, adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Now, why, why would he use that figure? Well, think about it for a minute. I mean, the Bible uses really many different word pictures and metaphors to define our relationship with God, right? You know, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, meaning we are his sheep, and he protects us and feeds us and leads us. And God, our heavenly Father, the Father of lights, implies that through Christ we are his children and we are his heirs. Even in James chapter 1, verse 1, James begins with James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus is the emperor and king, and I am his subject. But what's the, what's the image behind this word adulteresses here what's the implication is it not that god is our husband he's our husband and you would you would be familiar with that image throughout the bible for instance in jeremiah chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 just just write this down on in, on your outline or in the margin jeremiah chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 says you know, the word of the Lord came to me. That's Jeremiah. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Israel. Here it is. God is speaking. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. All right? There's the, there's the bridal image. And then when you flip to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, listen to this. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. There it is. There it is. Have you ever, have you ever loved someone and you've, you've exposed your heart to that person? You've made yourself vulnerable to that person? And you express your complete and absolute love to that person and in return, they didn't love you back. They did not love you back. Or they cheated on your love. They cheated on you. They cheated on you. 
And we say, we say, God, don't you know how much this hurts? And God says, I know exactly how much that hurts. I know. James says here that, that the conflict and the quarrels and the infighting, especially that which involves selfishness and materialism and wrong motives, you think it's about the other person. It's not. It's not. It's you and God. You have broken faith with your betrothed. You're cheating on God. You've become friends with the world. And that word friends in James chapter 4, verse 4, don't you know that friendship with the world and anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world, we use the word friend in our culture so casually. It's, it's just a casual thing. But in the ancients, friendship was about alliance and loyalty. Alliance and loyalty. What causes fights and quarrels? James says you have chosen to ally yourself and be loyal to the world, to the world. What does he mean by that world? He's not talking about the planet. He's talking about a system that is bent against the purposes and plans of God. He's talking about an attitude or an outlook that is in complete opposition with the will of our Heavenly Father. Someone once wrote that the world sacrifices the spiritual to the material, the future to the present, the eternal to the perishable. The world is a flood of darkness, prejudice, and selfishness. And sometimes the world is right in your face, and other times it's sneaky. Sometimes it's brash, and at other times it's sly. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 expresses the contents and the intents of the world better than any verse I can think of. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, not talking about the planet, talking about the outlook that is against God's purposes. For all that is in the world, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. There it is. This comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the thing that James confronts most is how brazen these Christians are about pursuing this false lover. Scholars have wondered what Old Testament image was in James' mind when he called this church adulteresses. And the consensus is Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20 simply says, This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. That's how brazen. That's how brazen it's going on here. And James says that this is, that's not going to work. You cannot align yourselves with the world and be friends with God. You can't. Furthermore, having cheated on your husband, God, you are chasing after a false lover, the world, who in the end will cheat on you. See, that's the thing, isn't it? We cheat on our spouses going after another, sp uh, another spouse or another paramour thinking, well, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be faithful in this situation. I'm going after this person. But the assumption is they're going to be faithful to me. James says it, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You assume that if you break your vow to pursue the world, then the world will be faithful to you. And the world is never faithful. The world always plays around. Always. Someone once wrote, everything we lean on but God, everything 
Everything we lean on but God will be a dart which pierces our hearts through and through. Only those who lean on Christ will live the highest, choicest, safest, sweetest life. The issue is not the issue you think is the issue. The issue is spiritual adultery. You have, you have broken faith with your husband, James says. Now what? Now what? Come home. That's now what? Come home. Come home. Your, hus- your husband wants you home. See? That's why verse 5 says, or do you think the scripture says without reason that God jealously longs for the spirit that he made to live in us? God jealously longs for our spirits. He wants us home. And verse 6 says, he gives us more grace. You won't find that from the world. You won't. The world is a place of ungrace. But your husband will give you what the world can never ever give you but you've got to come home you will never find someone who will love you as deeply you will never find someone who is as capable as loving you as deeply as jesus because you see christianity is not parliament christianity is not a business relationship it's not knuckling under to god it's falling in love with Jesus. And when we fall in love, oh, don't you remember falling in love? You know, so, you know, you, you start singing these, these, these love songs that, that, that have these syrupy, cosmic lyrics. I mean, when Sarah and I were in college, we sang a duet together, and, and, and Olivia Newton John suddenly, sudden, she, she walks in, and suddenly I'm a hero. I'm taking in, my hopes begin to rise. Look at me. I'm not done yet. This gets better. <laughs> Listen. Look at me. Can't you tell I'd be so thrilled to see the message in your eyes? You make it seem I'm so close to my dream. And then suddenly it's all there. Suddenly the wheels are in motion. And I, 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 I like that part. And I, <laughs> maybe we should have taken the offering first, John. I don't know think about that. It's too late now, isn't it? Here, let me, let me just finish. And, and, I, and I, please, yeah, Qu- quickly, right? Quickly. Someone said quick. Here it is. Listen. And I, 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 I'm ready to sail any ocean. Huh? When you're in love, you start babbling like that. I'm ready to sail any ocean. Well, no, I'm not. <laughs> uh, oceans make me sick. Uh, uh, oceans, oceans make me take Dramamine. What are you talking about, sail any ocean? Come on. Yet this romantic sexual longing is evidence of a deeper longing that all of us have to, ne- to connect with the love that can fill unlike no human love can fill. See? See, the truth is, we really do want someone who is ready to sail the ocean for us. And we really do want someone who is thrilled to see us. And this person is God the Son, Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He sailed the ocean. He took on the nature of a servant. He entered our dimension. He put on flesh. 
and he put himself on a spit for us, grilled on that Roman cross to the point of death to free us from the bondage of pursuing false lovers because he is the true and faithful husband, church family. Only, only one person can say, I'm ready to sail in the ocean, because he has. Jesus has. And he loves us more than these weak pretenders, these counterfeit suitors, these idols. And, and, and just as any, any faithful husband would jealously protect the sacred intimacy with his spouse, James says that God jealously longs for the spirit that he made to live in us. You are never going to find someone who is capable of loving you as deeply as Jesus. Ever. So what are you wasting your time ranting and raving with this opponent on the other side, expecting them to give you what they can't give you? So come home, James says. Just come home. Your husband wants you home. You get this spiritual adultery is not just some trip to a pagan temple where we offer a sacrifice to an idol. I mean, it's, here James says that spiritual adultery is a divisive, factious, covetous, bitter, I want my way or else self-centeredness where we grip tightly to this idol of this heart, this other lover, the same time next year paramour. James says to Christians then and now, your fights come from flirting with a false lover who will never love you as faithfully as Jesus has or will. Your husband wants you home. Come home. Come home, please. And that's what verses 7 through 10 are about. Submit yourselves then to God. What is that? Come home. Resist the devil and he will flee. What is it? Come home. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Come home. Wash your hands, you sinner. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn well. Come home. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Come home. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Honey, come home, Jesus says. Come home. Because someone loves you more than life itself more than his life. And when you're in love with someone, aren't you happy to please them, really? See, Christianity is not parliament. It's your husband. It's not something we show up every week to be grilled by a God for 30 minutes who wonders why we're not measuring up. The gospel is the story of God covering his naked enemies and bringing them to the wedding feast and then marrying them rather than crushing them. There it is. And so the Christian sees obedience to God not in terms of law, but in romantic terms. My husband hates lying. My husband gets excited about truth and passion. And I can't, you know, I want to see the pleasure on my husband's face. And so I want to run to those things. Love is the most powerful appeal to obedience. Why should we not lie or steal or commit adultery or not be selfish and proud? Because if we do, I break my husband's heart, and why would I want to do that? See, to the degree that you can take that truth into your heart, you will receive the power not to sin. Jesus loves us. How can can we give our heart to anyone else? How can we give our heart to anyone else? He gives us more grace. The world will never give that, ever, ever. 
Your husband wants you home. Have you gone home? (laughs) Have you? Well, we need to do some business with the Lord over this here. And, uh, you know, I just want to ask you some personal questions as we prepare for some time with God through communion. Questions like this. um, You know, am, am I the kind of person who craves power and control? Do I find myself envious of the successes of others? Do I want to win arguments at all costs? Or am I content to find truth and grace and peace and justice and love? What is it? Am I seeking power? Am I seeking my own pleasures in terms of my attitude toward others? Who am I sleeping with other than God? Am I able to see a connection between my relationship with people and my relationship with God? Because I'll tell you something. (laughs) You know, how how do I know if I've come home? You know how you know if you've come home? You start treating other people better, verses 11 and 12. You know, James says, brothers, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother and judges against him speaks against the law and judges it. See, when the slander's gone and the gossiping's gone and the bitterness is gone, see, that's evidence that you've gone home. Have you? Have you? Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace because we worship, we're married to a peacemaker who on the cross, Jesus got naked for me. And he suffered to the point of death. And he absorbed the worst that this world's evil system could give him. And he rose from death to prove that it cannot overpower him. To prove that he's the king, the faithful husband. Oh, church family, your husband wants you to come home. Come home.